Hello, church. If you would open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We looked at this passage last week. We will take this section again. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 7. We'll focus on 5 through 7 primarily, but let me read the whole thing for the context. This is God's Word. First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and telling the truth, not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Father, You tell us that your word abides forever and that we are like grass. We are like grass. We grow and we die and we blow away. We return to the earth, but your word endures forever. And so, Lord, we reverence this text before us. We honor you as we submit ourselves to what You've revealed here. And we pray that this living and abiding Word would change us and that You would cause us to worship You more. That we would leave here giving You more glory and honor with our lives. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are certain verses that have this unusual way to summarize the whole Christian message in just a few words, and our passage is one of those today. Uh, So for those of you who, um, who may be here and you're still trying to figure out what Christianity is about, uh, this passage is for you. And for those of you here who want to get better at evangelism, I hear many times Christians say, "I I had this opportunity to talk about Christ, and I just fumbled and couldn't figure out where to start, or I rambled and overcomplicated things. This passage is for you. Uh, For anyone here who woke up and you didn't want to hear a complex, nuanced theological sermon today, but just a simple, simple proclamation of the gospel, this is your sermon. Um, You should memorize this text. You should memorize this. If you have children, Uh, Tell them, the pastor said, you have to memorize this. Um, I'm making you. Uh, If that sounds too authoritative, uh, just say the pastor is encouraging us uh, to memorize this this passage. Verse 5 is what we're primarily going to look at. Uh, Before we get there, I want to see some of the surrounding context uh, that that I think is very important. So let's look at verse 6 first. It says that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony given at the proper time doesn't mean that Paul decided the proper time 
to give the testimony to others. It means that God, in the proper time, decided when to give the testimony to Paul to then give to others. And this testimony that God gave to Paul was first given to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the Old Testament prophets, and now it's given to Paul to then give to us. This is the the message of the Messiah, the good news of the one who would come and bring salvation not only for Israel, but all people, for the Gentile nations. This is what theologians call the eternal covenant of redemption, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in eternity ordained a plan to save a people, not just of the Jewish nation, but especially at the proper time to include the Gentiles. That's what we're seeing here. Now, here's something very interesting that I want us to notice about this phrase, this testimony. Uh, Many believe that this phrase actually signifies that Paul is quoting from an early creedal or confessional statement. Uh, We know these creeds and confessions of the early church were already being passed around in Paul's day. It does seem very likely uh, that that's what he's quoting from. For example, in uh, one chapter over, we'll get to it next month, in 1 Timothy 3.16, it says, Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. There's no debate on that if Paul's quoting an early creed or confessional statement of the church. He is. There's nobody debates that. It's very clear. It says, we confess, and then it lists off uh, the doctrine of Christ. And so we know by 60, mid-60 AD, you know, 30-ish years after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, the church has started, that the church has already has creedal statements about their unified belief in Jesus that they're confessing among each other and in their churches. And it looks like Paul could be quoting from one of these uh, because of the phrase, which is the testimony given, it's early creedal and confessional language, but also how succinctly it reads, one God and one mediator. The, The compactness of that sounds confessional. And so um, two two things, uh, two of these points of doctrine that are being confessed here are modified with the word one. One God, one mediator, you can see that there. Um, But you'll notice that the other ones are emphasizing singularity. So the idea of oneness is implied. So here's what I'm getting at. Here's the outline. Uh, I see here one truth, one faith, one God, one mediator, one man, one ransom for all people. So one, 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 all. That's the early creedal confession that seems to be a standard of orthodoxy, you could call it. If you want to know what is Christianity, what is basic and essential to Christianity, these six ones that we're going to go over for all who would receive them is our confessional standard. So we confess these six one things that he lists here. Let me start with the first one, one truth. Uh, maybe, maybe, here's maybe the easiest way to explain this. When you look at a confession of faith or a statement of faith, we often call them, what do they start with? 
Do they start with what we believe about God? No, they start with what we believe about Scripture. Well, why would, why would we not start with God? Are we saying that the Scriptures are more important than God? Why, why start with what we believe about Scripture before what we believe about God? Well, the reason is, how do we know what we believe about God is right? Unless we know where we're getting our knowledge from. Unless we have an idea of what the Scripture and our belief in the Scripture actually is. So this is how Paul is training Timothy, who's ministering in a culture very similar to ours, relativistic, pluralistic um, culture in Ephesus, and he's highlighting what we might call fixed and objective gospel realities. Truths that are not dependent on Timothy, not dependent on the people in Ephesus, not dependent on us. They're just true. They're just true. And this means that some of the things that Paul is saying here may or may not correlate with Timothy's understanding of history or Timothy's particular worldview. Some of the things Paul's saying to Timothy may or may not fit uh, Timothy's personal experience. They may not make him feel good. He may not like how they make them fe- how they make him feel. That doesn't matter. the The ultimate question here is: Is Paul lying? Or is he telling the truth? That's all that matters. This is where all this must start. The burden of proof is on whether he is telling the truth or lying. Look at verse 7. This is exactly what he's saying. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the burden of proof is on the reader to prove Paul is lying. So he's, his claim is, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And so anyone who would come and say, no, I think Paul's lying. I don't think he's actually a, a, an inspired author of Scripture. The burden of proof is on that person to historically, in some, uh, some verifiable way, prove Paul is wrong. The burden of proof is on the reader to prove he's wrong. And you can't just say, well, I don't... I don't like how it sounds, or I don't like how it makes me feel, or that isn't my experience, or this is you know, my opinion. You can't say those things. Paul's words cut through the vagueness of a pluralistic or postmodern relativistic conceptions of my truth. This is my truth. What the Bible says doesn't fit my truth. It cuts through all of that. Because God and the Bible don't operate like that. There is the truth, or there is lies. There are things that are true or false, not because we believe they're true or false. Believing something is true or believing something is false doesn't make it true or false. It just is true or false, whether you believe it or not. Whether it makes sense to you or not. This is how God has set up the world. This is how reality is. And so Paul is saying that I am going to say things about God, I am going to say things about the mediator between God and man, and I'm asking that you test them. And on the basis of whether God has already said these things in the Old Testament or by other apostles, you can test whether these things are true or not. This is the starting point of Christianity. This is the, the starting presupposition, we might call it, of Christianity. There is one truth. 
There is one truth. And then he says also, and this leads to our second, there is one faith. Now look back at verse 7. That's where I'm getting this. He uses the word faith there, but he's not talking about a personal faith. He's not talking about the faith that you personally possess. He's talking about an objective faith in a unit of doctrine. He's not speaking about a personal faith here, but an objective type faith delivered to us, a whole uh, body of Christian divinity, as the reformers would call it. So let me give you some examples. So let me say this first. In 1 Timothy, 20 times the word faith is used. In 2 Timothy, another 10 times the word faith is used. If you go through and read all of those, which I did early this week, almost all of them are talking about the faith. Not your faith as as a personal thing, but the faith. So let me just read over a few of these. I won't, these are all from 1 and 2 Timothy. To Timothy, my true child, in the faith, they must hold the mystery, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and then they will gain great confidence in the faith, talking about deacons. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. It says, if you will put these things before the brothers, you are a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Do you see how it modifies and clarifies what the faith means? Good doctrine. The words of the faith, the good doctrine that you have followed. Here's another one. If anyone does not provide for the relatives of his own, uh, for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, he is denied the faith. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. And then he closes the the letter, O Timothy, guard the, the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Here it's different than personal faith. Now we need a personal faith. Paul teaches that. But this is different than the faith as a body of doctrine that is what we would call Christianity or what is essential to be a Christian. Things that you must receive. So let me, let me explain it like this. Try to make this as simple as possible. You can't say, for example, I, I really do believe Jesus died on the cross. I just don't believe he bodily resurrected from the dead. Can't say that. That's to reject the faith. Um, You can't say, well, I believe Jesus saves sinners, but I'm just personally not going to stop my sinning. I'm going to live unrepentantly in my sin. That is to deny the faith. You can't pick and choose what parts of Christianity you like and don't like. You take the faith as a whole. You take the whole Jesus, his incarnation into humanity, him being the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead physically, his ascension into heaven, his lordship over all, that you can only be saved by him, by grace, through faith, not of works. You've got to take the whole of Christ. You've got to take the whole of Christ's teaching. 
which includes what he said about sexuality and marriage and gender. You've got to receive all of what Jesus did and what Jesus said and who Jesus is, or you reject the faith. Do you see how this works? This is what Paul is telling Timothy. The faith comes as a package deal. In Ephesians 4, it says there is one faith. Now, I'm not saying that in order to become a Christian, you have to have studied all of those things out and made sure you go through your checklist of all proper doctrine. And after you've studied all these texts thoroughly, you say, yes, I'm in. That's not what I'm saying, although some may do that. What we're saying is when the word of God comes to you and you hear the gospel, even in a very simplistic form, you must receive it as it is. And as you learn more about Christ and more about the gospel, you cannot, you cannot reject what you've heard. You keep it. You deepen your faith in the faith. And then central to this is verse 5. There is one mediator between God and man the man Jesus Christ. You either bank your whole eternity on that or you reject Christianity entirely. So we go back to Paul's words, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. And look, were you there to see Jesus live and do miracles, die on a cross, resurrect from the dead? Did your eyes watch him walk out of the tomb? Did you see him ascend to heaven? Send the Holy Spirit? Can you tell if he's forgiven your sins? If they're really gone? Have you been to heaven? Do you know there is one? I mean, how, how are you going to have any confidence in these things unless you receive the faith? Unless you believe there is a truth that God has spoken through human authors and that Paul in particular is one of them. And therefore, he's not lying. He's telling the truth. This is, this is absolutely foundational for Christianity. We receive one truth and one faith. This leads to number three, one God. Look at verse five. This couldn't be any clearer. There is, say it, one God. All right, we believe that, which... You say, well, what does that really mean? I think it means at least four things. Uh, first, it means that we're monotheists. We believe there's one God. Uh, we believe what Israel professed for many years in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord, uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We believe that. We're monotheists. Even though sometimes we're accused of being polytheists. As if we worship many gods. Why would someone say that about a Christian? Well, because of the Trinity. Because we believe that there is a Father, Son, and a Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say, oh, so you worship three gods. No, we don't. We're monotheists. There is one God. There is one God. We teach our children. This is why we do catechisms, by the way. I mean, you, can, you should give all, your, all the verses to your children, but there is a help in just succinctly teaching them what the Bible says, that there is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not one of those three persons is more God than the other persons. They're all equally God. They all work 
harmoniously together as one God. For example, think about um, page one of the Bible, all right? This, is, this isn't like a hard doctrine to figure out where it's at. You go to just page one, and you already see the seed form of this. Many of you know the verse I'm thinking of. It says, let us make man, let who? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we see the plurality and the oneness right there on page one of the Bible. So we've got, we're monotheists, we're, we're Trinitarian, and then one God also implies that God is simple. God is simple. I don't mean simplistic or elementary, uh, but a doctrine called divine simplicity. Divine simplicity, it's uh, the old doctrinal standard, the Belgic Confession in 1561, says it like this, there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. So the old Reformed Confession states it. God is simple. Again, we don't mean by simple he's unintelligent. We don't mean that he's easy to understand. By simple we mean he's not made up of parts. Van Til says the whole is identical with the parts. So God is not, for example, his goodness, plus his mercy, plus his justice, plus his power as all separate parts. What this is teaching is that all his attributes are identical with his essence. You hear people say things like, God has justice, he has wrath, but he is love. That's not true. That's to misunderstand the oneness of God. God is one. So we can say God's love is his true nature, and so is his holiness, and so is his justice, and so is his righteousness. All his attributes are identical with his essence. So to say that God has justice, but God is love, makes love the central characteristic of God and downplays all the other attributes. It is not a right understanding of the one God. God is simple. He is not a composite being made up of many parts. So when it says, for example, God is love in 1 John, we believe that. We also believe when it says God is light. God is a consuming fire. God is spirit. Okay? All these scriptural statements about God's goodness, His kindness, His power uh, are, 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 are showing us the essence of who God is. Listen to how Bavink points out this. He says, this shows that God has a distinct and infinite life of His own within Himself. Kevin DeYoung put it like this, God in His very essence within Himself and by Himself is love, wisdom, and holiness. God is whatever He has. He is not the composite of his attributes, some in greater, some in lesser amounts. God is a simple being without parts or pieces. His attributes don't stick to him. He is what they are. We're monotheists. We're Trinitarian. We believe in the simplicity of God. And then one God also means that God's purposes and work are one. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean that the purposes and the work of God are one? Well, take, for example, this question. Is, 
is it right to say that God is our Savior? Can we say that? That God is our Savior? The Trinitarian God. I mean, we, we know Jesus is our Savior. We're happy to say that. But can we say God is our Savior? Well, Paul apparently thinks we can. Look at verse 3. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. You say, how can the triune God be called our Savior if only Jesus is really the one that came down to save us? Well, here's how we can say that. The Father appoints salvation, the Son achieves salvation, and the Spirit applies it. Or here's another way to say it. We're predestined by the Father, we're purchased by the Son, and we're persevered by the Spirit. All of the Trinity harmoniously working together to complete the salvation of God's people. Now, I, I don't think that means just to affirm that God is Savior, that we have to deny that Jesus has a distinct work in that. I mean, Jesus did come down as a Savior and mediate, and that leads to this fourth point, that we have one mediator. Look back at verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. We could spend so long here. I was reading a book earlier this week um, by Puritan Thomas Watson. It's no longer in print. And he said something very interesting. Uh, he said, the work of Jesus' mediation is not just about his redemption. It's not just about salvation. He said his very nature as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son, who isn't the Father or the Spirit, makes him a mediator. Here's what we need to remember, church. God created the world through the mediation of the Son. God sustains the world through the mediation of His Son. God reveals Himself to the world through the mediation of His Son. He saves the world through the mediation of His Son. He hears and answers the prayers of His people through the mediation of the Son. And one day He will come and judge the world through the mediation of the Son of God. So when you hear somebody talk about, you know, being Christ-centered and or Christocentric, if that's what they mean by it, amen. He is a mediator in, in a full and total sense. Now let's narrow down. Here's a basic definition of, of mediator. Uh, I think this is helpful sometimes to take a verse, look at a few translations. So let's take Job 9.33. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read this. Job 9.33 says, ESV says it like this. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Arbiter. Listen to the New American Standard. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand on us both. And then listen, the New King James Version says, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. So you can get the definition of mediator, umpire, arbiter, go-between, someone who can lay their hand on both God and man and, and somehow mediate between the two parties that are at war, who are disconnected from one another. Job says there is no one who can do this. 
you know, what, what is the history of humanity? One way t- to sum up the whole history of humanity is one failed mediator after another. Uh, John Calvin and many of the reformers would talk about the, 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 the mediation of the prophet, the priest, and the king. That God set up these three offices as mediatorial offices between sin, sinners and a holy God. And so the prophet speaks on behalf of God to man. Prophets mediate God's truth on behalf of God to man. The priest mediates God's forgiveness to sinners. Through what? Through blood sacrifices, through prayers, through offerings to God according to the law. So in that sense, a priest mediates between sinners and a holy God through the sacrificial work. The kings of Israel mediate God's rule on earth imperfectly, but they bore that office of a kingly mediator. And so the whole history of humanity is one fallen prophet, priest, and king after another who couldn't mediate for sinners. Why? Because they needed mediation. They too were sinners. Of course they could not reconcile sinners to God since they too were sinners before God. And all of this points to the greater need for uh, to the need for a greater prophet, a greater priest, and a greater king. That only Jesus could fulfill this office. Only Christ could stand in the gap between a holy God and sinful man as prophet, priest, and king. And, and by the way, side note here, um, maybe this is a good opportunity to point out words like covenant theology get thrown around a lot and. I know a lot of people just go, I don't even know what that is. And they start studying it and it can be very broad and complex. Here's a little primer on covenant theology. What is covenant theology? Uh, It is that there is one way of salvation for Israel and the church. That's the most basic thing you could probably say about covenant theology. There's one way of salvation for Israel and for the church. For example, a uh, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And, and this is so central to everything about Christianity. I, I remember um, years ago, I went on a mission trip down the Amazon, and we were going... Uh, we were going deep down into the Amazon a few days into the jungle and we would go and stop and, and kind of dock the boat at these little villages and go in these villages and, and we would go up to hut after hut and talk to the people and sit on their floor and tell them about Jesus. And I had a, a translator with me, a very attractive one, um, who later became my wife. Uh, and uh, as she was translating, <laughs> you didn't know where I was going with that, did you? Um, as she was translating for me, uh, I'm waiting as and going back and forth with her trying to communicate with these people. And I noticed on their wall, there's these uh, little pictures of Mary and, and pictures of different saints. And then on their shelf, these are little figurines of different saints and deities. And I didn't really, it didn't really register until we left that particular house. And I thought, you know what they heard? I bet all they heard was, do you want Jesus to add to your shelf? You want Jesus to kind of put another picture on the wall? And I don't know if these were polytheists and they actually believed in multiple gods. I don't know if they were syncretists 
uh, that mix multiple religions. I don't, I don't know, but I knew the next hut I go into, I need to be a lot more clear. You don't put Jesus on your wall among the others. You don't, Jesus isn't a little figurine to stick on your mantle with your other little deities. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And if you receive Him and know Him, you knock out all these others. And you put all your faith in that one mediator between God and man. This is what Jesus claimed about Himself. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You want to go through into life, into heaven, into eternity with God? You must go through Jesus. What does Jesus say? I am the door. He said, John 10, 9, I am the door. If anybody enters by me or through me, he will be saved. But you got to go through Jesus. He is the only way to heaven, to forgiveness, to life everlasting You can't be born into it. You can't be baptized into it. You can't work your way into it. It is Christ and Christ alone which leads to our fifth confession. We confess one man. Look back at verse 5. There is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Okay, away with all the false heretical doctrines that Jesus was only God. He is also man. He is man. The man, Christ Jesus, also known as Jesus Christ. Jesus meaning God saves. Christ meaning the anointed one of God, the promised Messiah. He is the God. He is the man. He is the God. He is the man, rightly called the God-man in Scripture. Because He could go between a holy God because He is God and a sinful man because He is sinless man. And He can reconcile the two parties. This fixes Job's problem because Christ can take the hand of man, sinful man, but He Himself not being a sinner, he can take the the hand of man and he can put man's hand in the hand of holy God and he can reconcile them. And he alone can do this because of who he uniquely is as the mediator between God and man. This is why, guys, this is why it's so important that when we're trying to explain to people the gospel, we don't just talk about sin. Now, people need to understand sin, obviously. That is essential for them to understand and be saved. But they can't only understand sin. They also have to understand something of the holiness of God and the holiness of the God that they have sinned against. You hear stories of uh, you know, these mafia leaders and uh, they'll get arrested, they're put in prison, they're, they're chained up, and, and on their day in court, they'll walk them into the courtroom and these men are laughing. They'll just be laughing walking into the courtroom. Why would, why would they be laughing on their day of judgment? Because they know the one on the throne, that judge is just as corrupt as they are. They have nothing to fear because they, they know the judge is just like them. 
But that man stops laughing the moment he realized that judge, that corrupt judge, has been replaced with a just and a righteous and a holy judge who will take into account all that they've done and justly punish it. Changes everything. And this is how many people treat God. They say, oh yes, sin, I agree. I mean, nobody's perfect. Everybody's a sinner. But they're banking on the fact that there is no just God. They're banking on the fact that there is no penalty for sin that will be justly applied to the sinner. And how rudely awakened will be so many people to realize the one who sits enthroned and that they will stand alone before is holy and is righteous. And this drives us to this sixth and final point, one ransom. One ransom. Verse 6 says, who gave His life as a ransom for all. How many times did He give it? He didn't need to die billions of times for billions of people. One death was enough to ransom all. This word ransom, I want to take just a moment on it. Um, it's an interesting Greek word. Anti-utron. Anti-utron. It has two parts it kind of puts together and both of them have a distinct meaning. Uh, the first part, utron, means to free from slavery and bondage to sin. So this word occurs twice, once in Matthew, once in Mark, but you'll recognize a verse like, the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom, an utron, for many. Referring to the ransom Christ that Christ paid. The Greek, the classic Greek, utron, means Always a, pay, or a payment which releases a man from an obligation that he was bound to fulfill. One scholar says utron means the purchase price paid or received for the liberation of a slave or hostage of war. Many of you know that uh, recently there was a hostage situation in the Middle East uh, where our government was forced to decide how much is an American citizen actually worth financially. Monetarily, uh, the government is often forced to make these decisions. I remember um, when I was younger hearing that, uh, that many hostages of war were purchased by our uh, government for maybe four or five million dollars. You give it to the country and, or the people that have hostaged them and you free those from captivity. And, um, <laughs> and many of you know this summer, they, it was made public that the Biden administration negoci negotiated the release of five American hostages by Iran at the exchange of $6 billion. $6 billion, uh, which was three times more than the Obama administration a few years earlier for four hostages in 2016. And this is something that governments have to do. They have to figure out how much is, is an American citizen worth and how much is it going to actually cost to ransom them from captivity. Now, the same language is used here regarding us and our sin. Is there a negotiating with sin or its penalty for sin? There is not. Is there a currency that God will accept for the release of those who are in captive? Yes, there is. It is not money. It is the currency of His Son's blood. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, you were ransomed 
from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. This fulfills Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52.3, you were sold for nothing and without money you will be redeemed. The other part of this Greek word, anti, is important, maybe more important than this first thing, because it implies substitution, that there is a, a need for a substitution, a dying on behalf of sinners. So it's not enough to just say that Jesus died for sinners. We have to say Jesus died in place of sinners. He died in the place of sinners. There's, guys, there's no getting around this idea of substitution. I mean, it's embedded in the very word that Paul's using. Substitution. That he died for us. And even more, he died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. And again, not just for the Jewish people. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's not just thinking, this is for all the Jews. This is for the Gentiles. This is for all peoples. He is the God-man. He is the mediator between God and all mankind. All peoples and nations and tribes and tongues. Listen to, a f- to Revelation 5.9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it doesn't stop there. It gets better. It says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is glorious. Christ is no tribal deity. He is not. He is the world's only Savior and God will send no other. He will send no other. And therefore, we happily, Christians, brothers and sisters, confess there is one truth. There is one faith. There is one God. There is one mediator. There is one man. One name given to man by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. And there is one ransom. One death. One substitutionary death that can bring in peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. Amen? I believe this. This is very good news for us. As we prepare to come to the table, what we do, one of the things we do when we come to the table is we profess that we believe these things. That's what Paul said when he, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, as you take this, you proclaim my what? You proclaim my death until I come. Uh, this is a proclamation of the, of the death of Christ and of our belief in the death of Christ. And let me remind us also, as you drink this liquid, as you eat this, this bread, uh, remember, this is not something that you do for Christ. This symbolizes what He has done for you. Put your mind there. Put your heart there. Uh, let us rejoice together as we come. If you're new and don't know how we take this, Uh, We believe that this supper is for those who have received Christ as mediator. They've bowed before Him as Lord. They've been baptized in His name. That you please join us. 
Uh, if not, we'd ask you to refrain. But in page two of your bulletin, uh, there's some very meaningful prayers that we'd encourage you to pray through in this time. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank You that You sent Your Son to mediate for us. You are holy. Your heaven is holy. No sinner will go there except through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, we thank You that You came down and You died as a substitute for our sins. That You resurrected from the dead to show You have conquered death and hell and Satan and sin. And that You have won the victory. And so Lord, as we come to this table, Lord, deepen our confidence in Your finished work and strengthen us to go out and live lives that honor You this week. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.